Hey everyone, it's Brian. Just a quick note that we've just released the new book, Soil and Roots, Cultivating Deep Discipleship. It's been in the works for about a year now. It's a great, easy-to-read overview of deep discipleship and our journey to become more like Jesus. It covers the great omission, the three primary problems, and the joys of being in a greenhouse. We'll have something up on the website soon, but you can find it right now on Amazon by just searching for my name and the title, Soil and Roots. You can grab it in paperback or in digital format. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, here's the episode. Welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 80. We're exploring some of the perhaps hidden, rarely discussed qualities of a deep disciple, of a kingdom dweller. And today we're going to talk about releasing our constant need for control. Yikes. Season four is all about the forgotten kingdom. The kingdom of God is a primary theme of the New Testament, and it's woven throughout the Old. Yet, as we've discovered, many people have different, if not conflicting, ideas about what the kingdom is. We probably should be concerned about that. If the kingdom is Christianity 101, and we as followers of Christ are confused about it, we may be sending very mixed signals to those who don't even know Jesus yet. Does this kingdom refer to heaven? Or is it more about how we choose to live? Is the kingdom the sum of everyone on the planet who's following Jesus, sort of like a big spiritual reality? Or does it refer to God's reign over the entire cosmos and how Jesus is in the process of restoring and redeeming it in anticipation of one day handing it back over to his father? Well, why should we care? Because our conscious or unconscious ideas about the kingdom drive our conscious or unconscious ideas about our purpose. What we assume about the kingdom greatly influences our assumptions about who we're to be and what we're to be doing. Our unconscious ideas about the kingdom influence how we view and deal with evil, how we approach brokenness, and even our sense of hope for repairing things like damaged marriages and families and hearts. It's a big deal. I hope you're having thought-provoking, robust dialogue about the kingdom in your families, in your churches, your small groups, greenhouses. As a worldwide body of people, we really need to work this out together. As part of Season 4 in the Forgotten Kingdom, we're sauntering through this little mini-series called Kingdom Dwellers. What are some of the key characteristics of a deep disciple living in the kingdom? Well, if we've been in church for any length of time, we know we should be more loving, kind, gentle, self-controlled. We should be meek and humble and merciful. And if the point of deep discipleship is to become more like Jesus, if this whole journey is about our character formation, the formation of our hearts, then we may also learn some qualities of a kingdom dweller simply by, well, watching Jesus. Not only reading his words or those who wrote about him, but by sitting back and placing ourselves into the gospel narratives and just watching him. So the characteristics we've explored here so far are based on just that, just observing Jesus. How does he relate to people? What sort of questions does he ask? What sort of questions does he answer? Why are so many of his words cryptic and obscure? How does he relate to people who desperately need him? How does he relate to people who desperately hate him? 
we've picked up on two characteristics so far, courageous curiosity and particularity. A kingdom dweller is passionately and lovingly curious. We ask questions, but not socially conventional ones or even socially acceptable ones. Jesus is constantly inviting us into deeper and deeper levels of our soil, and so kingdom dwellers do the same thing. We practice being curious in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, and we might find ourselves becoming more and more tuned to the hearts of those around us. If, that is, we slow the heck down. Relentless work and busyness are anathema to courageous curiosity. We may well be productive and efficient, but we certainly won't be any more loving. The kingdom dweller is also particular. We notice the individual. That doesn't mean noticing someone out of the corner of our eye or noticing some sort of physical characteristic. It means we notice the heart, the soul, the inner life of an individual person. Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, Peter, Zacchaeus, even Judas. Jesus noticed the heart, the ideas, the desires, and the inner motivations of the individual. Here again, we find things like productivity, systems, efficiencies as potential enemies to particularity. If we start envisioning people as just numbers or data rather than unique image bearers with unique stories, we're going to miss this key characteristic of being a kingdom dweller. Which brings us to perhaps the most difficult quality of a kingdom dweller so far, the willingness to release control. I've been studying some difficult topics such as loneliness, depression, and anxiety for the podcast and for our greenhouse. Many of these conditions have increased in the culture over the past several years, especially during and after COVID. A few years ago, Dr. Len Lance estimated that some 7 million people attending church suffer from clinical depression. He also noted that 49% of pastors report that they rarely or never speak about acute mental illness to their church in sermons or large groups, and 23% of pastors have personally struggled with mental illness. I mentioned before that Mother Teresa considered loneliness to be the leprosy of our age. The Christian Post reports that 31% of Americans sense loneliness every day. Quote, for U.S. adults who experienced loneliness at least once within the past week, more than 40% of that group said the feelings of loneliness ranged from intense to unbearable, end quote. And anxiety continues to be a plague in our society. According to Forbes, quote, over 40 million adults, that's about 19% of the population, have an anxiety disorder in the U.S. According to the U.S. Census Bureau Household Pulse Survey, nearly one-third of adults 32% reported anxiety and depression symptoms in 2023. Now, we all face some anxiety in our lives, of course, but appropriate anxiety is different than an anxiety disorder. When our level of anxiety no longer aligns with the actual risk or problems we're facing, we're in the disorder category. Instead of something that happens as a result of just an event, anxiety becomes a static condition. Well, here's where this discussion gets really interesting. Quote, Adam Young describes anxiety as the experience we feel when our bodies have a deep reservoir of unfelt emotions. Anxiety is often linked to experiences in the past where we've disallowed ourselves to feel and experience certain emotions, such as grief, sadness, or anger. Because we've pushed those important emotions beneath the surface, anxiety is the feeling of not allowing ourselves to experience those core emotions. So anxiety is the way our body responds when our heart 
isn't allowed to express appropriate emotions related to parts of our story. If we don't express our anger, our sadness, our rage, our grief and loss, these emotions in effect eventually turn into anxiety. We begin to irrationally fear what may or may not happen in the future. According to a friend of mine, what are the two primary ways we normally deal with unresolved losses, especially if we're Christians? Intellectualization and exerting control. We attempt to think our way out of it, or we attempt to control our way out of it. Well, out of what? Out of the inevitable pervasive sense of helplessness and powerlessness. I'm finishing up a wonderful book called Hind's Feet on High Places by missionary Hannah Hernard, written back in the 50s. It's a lot like Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegorical story of a traveler on a spiritual journey. The main character is a maimed young woman named Much Afraid. She encounters a shepherd who invites her on a journey to a kingdom called High Places, where her twisted feet will be straightened, her crooked mouth will be restored, and she'll receive a new name. With much fear and anxiety, she agrees to the journey. But the shepherd soon introduces her to her two traveling companions for this long quest, and their names are sorrow and suffering. When I got to that point in the book, I'll confess I thought about putting it down and moving on to something else. Like you, I've experienced suffering and sorrow. Everyone has. But I didn't really want to contemplate sorrow and suffering as my traveling companions into deep discipleship. Kurt Thompson writes, quote, Beyond our awareness that all suffering shares some common attributes, most important is the reality that we all suffer, even if we are often extraordinarily unaware of it. The question is not if we each suffer, it is rather to what degree are we aware of it and how are we in relationship with it and responding to it, end quote. We've talked about the six stages of the spiritual journey here on Soil and Root several times. Stage one is being introduced to God. Stage two is learning about him. Stage three is about entering into a life of productive service, normally in a church. And for decades, I assumed that was the entire spiritual journey. But stage four is the journey inward, and it always involves hitting the wall. Some sort of crisis, theological problem, relationship fracture, or a life circumstance that causes us to question the doctrines, the rituals, the practices that we thought were sustaining us up to that point. When we hit the wall, and we all hit the wall at some point, we're faced with some choices, even if we aren't aware of it. We can turn back to the safety and security of stages one, two, and three. Or we can avoid the wall. We add various coping mechanisms to hide or numb the pain that the wall causes. Or we can give up entirely. And we're seeing this more and more in our society. People just giving up on Jesus and the church and the faith. Or we can choose to press into the wall. We enter into the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, and willingly experience it with Jesus and a trusted friend or two. In other words, we give up control. Instead of trying to hide from it, mask it, work harder to avoid it or anesthetize it with all sorts of virtues and vices, we give in to experiencing the losses we've so desperately tried to ignore. In effect, we embrace our helplessness, our powerlessness, and our vain attempts to control the suffering and the sorrow. This is not a very American, Western, or even modern thing to do. In fact, we've become a people who will do just about anything to control and avoid our suffering will go to extraordinary lengths not to head back into our stories and embrace, enter into the losses, the suffering, the sorrows, the shattered hopes, the dreams that never panned out, the career we wanted that never materialized, 
the flourishing marriage we thought we had, but that ended up in tatters or perhaps worse, a relationship of convenience. The friendships we thought would last forever that are now dim memories. Several years ago, I became dear friends with a coworker, but we lost touch after we went different professional ways. Last month, he passed away from cancer. I didn't even know he'd been sick. My heart's having a hard time figuring out how to process and mourn that. We suffer from unmet expectations of others, ourselves, and yes, even our unmet hopes and expectations of God. It's not polite to say that in many churches, but let's be painfully honest. God disappoints us sometimes. He frustrates us. Sometimes he angers us. We grasp for control of anything, everything, to avoid the pain of these losses. We grasp for control so that we don't experience and enter into the suffering. Well, what does control look like? Oh, let me count the ways. We take control by working to earn people's favor and applause. We try to control the narrative. By heavily and visibly being involved at church, we try to control our image. By manipulating our spouses and friends, we try to control our reputation. By giving our 10%, maybe a little bit more, we try to control God's financial favor. By hoarding money or assets, we try to control the future. By going back to the narcissist and the predatory personality over and over again, trying desperately to reconcile for the sake of the kingdom, we try to control someone unable to control themselves. By speaking with great authority and refusing to listen to others' hearts, we try to control the conversation and ultimately our broken identity. By ironically allowing ourselves to be manipulated and twisted, we try to control our acceptance by others. By arranging our work, our church, and activity schedules to make sure we don't have time to rest, contemplate, dialogue, and be formed, we try to control our own insecurities. Gosh, why does this type of list come so easily for me? Because I've tried to take control using all of them. If you're feeling courageous, sit down and take a few moments to write out the ways you attempt to take control of circumstances, people, and hearts. To control your image, reputation, identity, avoidance of pain and suffering, your heart, the list tends to write itself. What often strikes me about Jesus is how truly free he is. He's free from any perceived or real obligation to be like someone else. His brothers get on his case for claiming to be the Messiah, and they ridicule him. Jesus doesn't try to prove himself, doesn't mount an apologetics case. He isn't bothered by their treatment. He doesn't get defensive. He's going to do what he needs to do when it's his time to do it. He feels no obligation to answer questions asked of him or to provide signs when demanded of him. When he says things people don't like, he accepts that they don't like it, and he moves on. He doesn't run after anyone trying to conjole or persuade them to like him. He, he urges us to follow him, but he doesn't compel us. He invites us. If we don't accept his invitation, I think he mourns that, but it doesn't change his centeredness. He gives this odd speech about how we need to eat his body and drink his blood. If we just take ourselves out of the churchy culture for a moment, the comments are just weird. Why does he talk about himself like that? Is it any wonder why so many of his disciples give up and leave after a speech like that? It's kind of like Jesus intended to thin the herd. It's like he intended to see who was really with him and his odd stories and teachings and who was just along for the ride. He wasn't politically correct. He didn't sugarcoat. He wasn't a suck-up, didn't try to assume power, wasn't trying to make his way to the top. In fact, it seemed like he was intent on making his way to the bottom. It's hard to see in our age, but so much of what he said and did rocked 
the social and religious assumptions of his day. And he seemed perfectly free and delighted to be that way. Well, why? How was he that free? Because he didn't attempt to exert control. He came to do the will of his father and not his own. And he rested and he trusted in that, even when the outcome was the most intense suffering known to the universe. So I find Jesus a mystifying and fascinating person. He was free to relate to people as he saw fit, free to invite them, free to express a dizzying array of emotions in public and private, free to speak to people in different ways, free to accept that some would like him, some would try to kill him. He didn't cave to anyone's agenda, anyone's manipulations, or anyone's expectations. He was and is 100% Jesus. Man, I would love that. I had this vision in my mind of a Brian who is more like that, free to be myself in any conversation or exchange, regardless of how I'm perceived or liked, free to love, free to not always respond to social convention, free to not answer every question, free to walk away from manipulative people, free to challenge and provoke myself and others, even if it hurts a little bit. That version of me seems so calm, so free, so peaceful. Well, how does one get from here to there? How do we move forward from being people who use intellectualization and control to avoid anxiety, suffering, and pain? How do we release our vain attempts to control situations, people, circumstances, and let's be honest, even God? Well, I don't think it's as easy as repeating a few Bible verses over and over. Dr. Thompson gives us a little insight into how we may become freer to release control, and it has a lot to do with our relational attachment to Jesus. This is really interesting. Here's what he says, quote, if we are securely attached to Jesus, then ultimately we live in a safe world. This safety is predicated on being seen and soothed, the necessary hard deck on which we begin to form hope. This safety makes us comfortable and confident in our own skin. I'll say that again. This safety makes us comfortable and confident in our own skin. It means that we have been protected from forces outside us and from within that can do us harm, in the same way a child, when securely attached to their parents, lives in a safe home, end quote. So, ultimately, we continue to take control because, to be brutally honest, our hearts don't feel safe with Jesus. We say we trust him, but our hearts and our behaviors often disagree with our mouths. Think about it. Would we experience anxiety if we woke up every morning with our hearts resting in the experience that whatever happens that day is allowed or caused by Jesus, and so we are ultimately safe, even if we suffer? Thompson talks about the four S's, seen, soothed, safe, and secure. These are necessary to be securely attached in any relationship. If we woke up every morning, and not just intellectually knowing that we are seen, soothed, safe, and secure, but that our hearts constantly experienced those things, that that was our heart reality, why would there be any reason to be anxious or to try to wrestle control away from God or anyone else? Maybe you're already there, but I get pretty excited just anticipating the day when I find myself resting in my security in Jesus all day and all night. Not attempting to figure everything out, not attempting to plan every moment, to orchestrate conversations, to try to fix every problem or control every outcome. Doesn't it sound wonderful? All right, you say, how do our hearts experience being seen, soothed, safe, and secure in our journey with Jesus? 
Well, that's a super fair question. But before we answer it, let's take a quick look at a few obstacles to experiencing Jesus like this. What are some things that get in the way of us releasing control? Number one, many modern Christians' hearts have been trained to do and not to be. We don't want to admit it, but much of modern Christianity is actually a performance-based religion. We've talked about ideas in the air and ideas in the soil a ton here, and this is just another example of a hidden assumption, a hidden conclusion that seeps into our hearts, into our soils. If we try to read the Bible in a year and we hit Leviticus and give up, how do we feel? Probably guilty. Well, why? Is God not pursuing us in our hearts in a myriad of other ways? Is he up there with a ruler ready to slap our hands if we miss a few days of reading the Bible? It's because we've been trained, usually unconsciously, that God is only pleased with us if we successfully complete various Christian rituals. we got to get to church every week without fail. Why? Because the Bible says we shouldn't give up meeting together. That's the performance bar. Well, if our hearts are heavy or we're spiritually tired or we just need some time with family, is lightning going to strike us dead if we don't show up once in a while? Do we have to do a Bible study every semester? If doing the normal Christian things is actually turning into obligations that our hearts are beginning to resent, does that even make sense? Maybe our hearts are trying to tell us something. What if God is more concerned about you and who you are versus what you're doing for him? So to put it bluntly, we may struggle to experience the safety, the security of our relationship with Jesus if our hearts, underneath all of the religiosity, genuinely embrace or believe that God is only pleased with us if we're doing the current fashionable Christian things. Well, who can feel safe in that? We're always one mistake away from being kicked out of the in-crowd. The type of relationship isn't even set up to create safety, it's set up to create results. Here's a second reason. We may struggle to become securely attached to Jesus to experience being seen and soothed and safe and secure because of our stories. So we explored this back in season two. If our primary relationships growing up weren't secure, if our hearts weren't able to rest in them, if our hearts weren't able to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure, it's totally understandable why we may struggle to experience safety in our relationship with God now. If we've suffered betrayal or abandonment in our adult relationships, same thing. Your heart may not have been formed around the idea that relationships can be safe, so your heart is wary of placing that sort of trust in anyone, especially someone we can't even see. And here's a third reason that experiencing safety in our relationship with Jesus may be difficult. Candidly, our hearts may just not believe that he can be trusted. We don't believe he's safe for us. I realize this isn't something that we would admit in polite Christian company. If you try walking into many churches and announce that you trust God for your salvation, but not to actually take care of you, you may well be ushered to the door. However, if we experience suffering, sorrow, loss, betrayal, abandonment, our hearts may well question how a good God lets those traumas happen. And our questions may go back a very long time in our stories. And theological answers may not help. In fact, in some cases, they don't help. If trust in anyone is ultimately felt, it's experienced, and God has allowed things in our lives that are unjust, unfair, too much, too confusing, I don't think we should wonder why we may not be experiencing that sort of trust in him, why we may not feel very connected to God, or why we may not be experiencing security in him. And so, our hearts will try to take control to keep us from further pain and suffering. 
The good news is we have tremendous precedent for being honest about where our hearts stand in relationship to God. We are perfectly free to tell God that we don't think he can be trusted. Just ask Job, or the book of Lamentations, or the psalmists, or Moses, or Jeremiah. If we read our Bibles closely, we'll find some people told God exactly what they thought of him, and it wasn't always wrapped up in worship songs and pretty pictures. They questioned his plans, his justice, his actions, his words, his character. Last month, I wrote four laments. They're between me and God, but they're brutally honest. And they don't praise God for his goodness, that's for sure. Well, this brings us back to our question. How do we form a secure attachment with Jesus so that we do release control, we release anxiety, and so that our hearts feel safe with him and experience safety in him no matter what comes along? Well, (laughs) welcome to Deep Discipleship. This stuff isn't easy, and I'm not sure there's pat answers. There certainly isn't a seven-step program to experiencing security in God, despite the book titles you might see at your local Christian bookstore. I'll close by giving you three things to think about that have been helpful for me. Just take a few moments to ponder them, marinate on them, see how your heart responds. Here's number one. Anxiety, depression, and our incessant need to take control, they're all related. If anxiety really is the body's way of telling us that our heart is desperate to express losses that have been suffered in our stories, Adam Young suggests we begin to bend our minds that way with curiosity and kindness. It's a long, slow journey best taken with someone you trust. But how might we identify the losses in our lives that are yet unresolved? What should we be angry about or sad about or grieve that we haven't allowed ourselves to do up until now? I know. Good Christians aren't supposed to express so-called negative emotions, but just go with me on this. Anger, for example, it is the right emotional response to injustice. Have you ever experienced injustice that you've never allowed yourself to be angry about? Have you lost a dream, a relationship, a capability that you've not yet mourned? Was your heart trained to believe you weren't allowed to be angry or grieve? Perhaps your heart is right now signaling its readiness to open up a bit. Number two, Once in a while, I speak with someone who is considering deconstructing from the faith. That word can mean a few things, but in this case, it's someone who has hit the wall in stage four of our journey, and the Christian rituals and rhythms from the first few stages, they just don't sustain them any longer. They're certainly done with the institutional church, though they're often done with God altogether. Sometimes, though, they're afraid to tell God what they think of him. They're afraid to tell him he's let them down, that the suffering is too much, that he hasn't fulfilled his promises that he's not capable of conquering evil, that they no longer trust him to take care of themselves, much less anyone else. My gentle encouragement is to actually tell him. Find a quiet time in a room and tell God exactly what you think of him. Write a few laments, yell and scream, throw your arms in the air and speak plainly and with as much conviction as you're able. Modern Christians tend to be far too careful and reserved. God seems to deeply value authenticity. He can handle our negative emotions. He can handle our accusations, our charges, our claims of injustice and unfairness. In fact, he seems to invite it. Perhaps one of the primary ways our hearts learn to experience safety in Jesus is when we tell him exactly what we think of him, and then he still gently pursues us. He still woos us. He still offers to be with us, even when we're uncharitable or unkind to him. Chances are we're not always going to get the answers we want, or even the ones we think we deserve. 
but maybe there's a deeper level of soil here. Maybe it's not so much getting the answers, but rather getting him. Lastly, if we choose to head back into our stories and attempt to reconnect our hearts with unresolved losses, or if we're ready to tell God what we truly think of him, it's always best to dive into these areas with a few people who have our backs. Maybe it's a spouse or a dear friend. God often invites us to experience his safety and security with and through other people. Deep discipleship is not a journey of isolation, as much as many of us may try. So a kingdom dweller is increasingly characterized by releasing control. The need to be approved, to perform, to manipulate, to be seen a certain way, to be secure on our own. The need to lead, for position, to generate numbers or results. Very happily, letting go of control results in a decrease in anxiety, maybe even a decrease in depression, and some freedom, some peace, some rest. How do we let go? By authentically listening to our hearts, entering in and expressing our losses, laying aside our religious sayings and just telling God what we think of him and ourselves, even if we find him unfair or unjust, or perhaps just not there at all. We'll do just about anything to avoid suffering and sorrow, yet entering into them is often the way to the secure attachment, the safety that our hearts truly long for. I won't spoil the ending of the book Hind's Feet on High Places if you haven't read it, but I will share that the main character, Much Afraid, initially fears and distrusts her traveling companions, suffering and sorrow. Though somewhere along the way, her heart begins to release control. She willingly enters into her losses and she finds that her traveling companions are not so much to be feared, but maybe even to be valued, if not cherished. And eventually, they become friends. And through that journey, her heart experiences the safety and security of her shepherd, the same safety that you and I long for. Thanks so much for listening. For more information on Soil and Roots and Greenhouses, the podcast, the blog, or Deep Discipleship, head over to soilandroots.org. I'd love to connect with you, so feel free to email us at fish at soilandroots.org, and you can find us on Facebook at Soil and Roots Podcast. And we'll see you next time.